Cage.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is HTML.MCU.AntMan.TheWasp.com backslash should have been called TheWasp.AntMan.CageClub.Me.MCU. That's a lot of URL. It's a lot of me URL too. You know, it's funny that you say that it should have been called The Wasp and Ant-Man because the film actually almost was called Wasp and the Ant-Man, but they decided that Ant-Man and the Wasp was more iconic phraseology from the comics. I mean, it's more iconic phraseology, but that's more indicative of the problem that it's always been, which is that the man always leads the woman in terms of the superhero narrative. It's true, but I definitely think we can both agree that this is very much Wasp's movie, which was intentional on the filmmaker's part. I agree. It's the Wasp's movie, and then it's sort of Ant-Man, Hank Pym, and Janet Van Dyne's movie, kind of like all tied for second rung with Bill Foster and Ghost, and a distant third with Brucky Southern charm birch what's his name bucky southern charm birch yeah him wedged in there against the ex-cons for some reason bill foster and birch feel like they're just completely in different movies from everybody else most of the time that disappoints me because i love bill foster and you can hear us talk about bill foster on x's for podcast he actually appeared in the champions a number of times and was a really interesting character so this is just really disappointing yeah and kind of a disappointing use of an iconic actor in lawrence fishburne i really hope that we see more of him going forward i don't particularly need to see more of ghost going forward i understand that she's sort of redeemed by the end of this film but i find her to be one of the most unlikable mcu villains since like the abomination maybe i find her really really hard to sympathize with and there is something about that redemption that is so hollow i don't know that i would say she's redeemed so much as i would say she's cured and everybody's just sort of like yeah cured means good guy cured means good guy it is weird how everybody just is sort of like i mean you've kind of hurt some people and nearly led to a bunch of deaths but we're cool with it yeah i'm really not cool with it she's willing to do anything to anyone to get her way in a manner that we aren't supposed to forgive what's his name the bad guy from house of cards from the first ant-man film for i don't think she's very different from him except she has a father figure in Lawrence fishburne insect ex machina yellow jacket it's yellow jacket Absolutely. Yellow Jacket, which, by the way, was one of Hank Pym's many code names in the comics. So, it is interesting how many iterations of Ant-Man, Giant-Man, Goliath. There are so many versions of these weird, growing and shrinking characters, and they're all sort of packed in here in different forms. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I read was even the frequent references to Baba Yaga in this film. That's a character in the Marvel comics who's frequently associated with Captain Britain and X-Men's Colossus. I feel so bad for Colossus, as we've brought up also on X's for Podcast. He sort of gets all the Russian stuff that there is kind of packed in there. It's unfortunate. So, Kevo, I think it's time to get real bite-sized with this BTS and tell us all about Ant-Man and the Wasps behind the scenes. 
Well, like a lot of MCU films that we're looking at right now, there are a lot of returning members of this BTS. One member who is new is cinematographer Dante Spinati, who is a bizarrely fascinating man. He's 75 years old and a member of the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and has worked with directors such as Michael Mann, Michael Apted, and Brett Ratner. That's not a... That's Brett Ratner. Hmm. That's X3. That's not a strong vote of encouragement here. No, not especially. I definitely see you there. But one of the other things that he worked with Ratner on was the 2000 Nicolas Cage film, The Family Man. Cage Club! That movie just keeps coming up in the MCU. Uh, it's kind of weird, but I'm okay with it. He did cinematography for Gary Marshall's Beaches in 1988 and for Michael Apted's Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which was written by Marcus and McFeely, the people who are currently bringing us Infinity War and Endgame. Wow. And Beaches is like the gayest movie ever for everyone who didn't know, but that brought me to somehow wanting to see The Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Drag Treader, and see some sort of uber-gay oeuvre of his come to life. Interesting. I'm not against it. I think it's really cool that they brought aboard such a critically acclaimed and award-nominated cinematographer for this film, even though they are someone whose things that they were nominated for don't necessarily cross with Ant-Man. Dante Spinati was nominated for an Oscar for both LA Confidential and The Insider, so that's kind of odd. He's also notable for having done cinematography for both film adaptations for the novel Red Dragon. This guy is probably more storied and more varied than most of the Marvel Universe put together, especially because so many of them have become the same names in the same fields over and over again. It's really interesting to hear that this guy has worked with pretty much everybody else ever. Yeah, but then you get into the other avenues of this film, and it's the same people that we've seen over and over again. The composer is returning from Ant-Man, Christoph Beck. Again, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time gushing over, even though I spoke about him last episode. He is one of the composers that inspired my love of that type of music, like 20 years ago now with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's one of the many things that makes me love behind-the-scenes information so much, knowing about the people who really help build the story beyond just the actors. I feel like one of the things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe really committed to with Phase 3 was stronger scores. I feel like the Ant-Man theme that was in last film and again in this film is easy to remember and identify, and I thought the Wasp's theme was tremendous. I really feel like Phase 3 was the Marvel score phase. I agree. Christoph Beck spoke about how he leaned more into the Wasp's theme for this film than Ant-Man's because of the overall feeling of this being the Wasp's movie. And one of the things I loved about her theme is it complements Ant-Man's very well without just being some sort of carbon copy. The screenwriters this time around are specifically Paul Rudd, Gabriel Ferrari, and Andrew Barrer, who are the the latter two being the ones who wrote Luis's story tangents in the first Ant-Man film. They were production writers on staff, and people responded so well to their writing that they were contracted to write the next film with Paul Rudd. What I think is so amazing about that is they really held back on the bit that made them famous. I feel like there's glimpses of that, but at no point do they overuse that device, despite that device being what got them this job. I agree. I think there's a lot of fast-talking comedy in this film, but that specific Luis technique, I think they only used it once in this entire movie for about two minutes. 
And that was really clever because one of our biggest complaints about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was the overuse of the things that made the first film so famous. These guys are kind of relative nobodies. They did a horror film called Haunt in 2014 before this. And after this, they have a pilot coming up for a adaptation of the comic by Christopher Priest, Quantum and Woody. Have you heard of this comic? I love Quantum and Woody. I also want to say that Christopher Priest did a pretty cool job on Black Panther. At one point in the late 90s, he had a cool crossover with Deadpool as well during that run. I think Christopher Priest is a nifty writer and I love Quantum and Woody. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I was pretty excited too. And then one of the other things that got me excited as I went into further research on that project is that in March of 2017, it was announced both that it would be on TBS and that the show would be produced once they were finished with Infinity War and Endgame by the Russo brothers. Sounds like somebody discovered a talent that they believed in. Kind of, and speaking of talents that they believe in, after Paul Rudd and Gabriel Ferrari and Andrew Bearer's draft of this script, kind of late in the game actually, it was announced that there would be a little bit more work done on this script by returning writers Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, who you might remember as scriptwriters on Spider-Man Homecoming, and will be the main scriptwriters, the only credited ones currently, on Spider-Man Far From Home. And again, these are guys who worked on Community extensively, writing a ton of, well, Chris McKenna wrote a ton of episodes, Eric Summers wrote one, but it was Ass Crack Bandit, so like, that was a pretty good one, I'm gonna give him that one. As for returning director Peyton Reed, he was attached to the project pretty quickly after the initial announcement of it. News of the sequel came only three months after the film's release, and a month after that, the director and two main leads were confirmed to also be attached. And it's really necessary. While I will ultimately admit I do not enjoy this movie as much as I thought I did, the emotional resonance that the main cast goes through is so central to this film for me. I really, really appreciate the performances that Peyton Reed was able to get out of this cast. Really, really, they carry the movie with their emotional connections. And one of the things he said was because he has always turned down sequels when being offered them in the past, that he was excited to come back for this one for that reason, especially because he had come into the first Ant-Man film so late in the game. A lot of the bedrock of that film had already been placed down before he got there. And, you know, we've speculated before that a lot of the hope stuff and the family stuff really feels like it was probably a late addition. And so probably things that Peyton Reed did put in. Just look at the way that Cassie's mom and stepdad treat Scott in this film versus that one, where they're this beautiful, loving family. And that was one of the things we said we wanted from the first film. Here we have it in abundance. I agree. And I really love the positive family dynamic. I also think the dynamics they try to show at the end of the movie are really strong. It's fascinating in that Ant-Man became the family Marvel franchise. It also explains why it comes in a little bit lower, why one of the main characters is a child. It feels right at home as the Marvel family film, even if it is the franchise that has yielded the two least impressive films in a franchise. Yeah, both of these films, they aren't exactly the lowest earning films of the MCU, but they are the fourth and sixth lowest earning respectively and they're both later films so that is notable yeah and ant-man and the wasp is specifically the lowest earning sequel of the mcu so far and it is the lowest earning mcu film since doctor strange in 2016 somebody made a snide comment i saw on the internet about 
Captain Marvel only made so much money because people wanted to see the movie that came before Endgame and get answers. And like, if that was really the case of why Captain Marvel was so successful, we would have seen a more significant bub for Ant-Man and the Wasp. It was the first thing that came immediately after Infinity War. We had no idea going into this film where it was going to go, how it was going to play out. We didn't know if it was post-snappening and this is just who was left. They were really, really dodgy about all of that stuff before the film came out. It's also interesting to note that this is the second time they're putting an Ant-Man movie directly after a major Avengers event. So, huh. Also, the second time a Captain movie followed an Ant-Man movie. Also, the second time that an Ant-Man movie having a connection to the next movie would majorly affect the plot of that film and on that note it's also worth noting that this is the first appearance of ant-man in a film that did not also feature falcon now i'm sad there was no sam but the more i think about it yeah i guess i couldn't have sam i also kind of want to know what the hell how what like microverse planet were ant-man and his team on that they weren't hearing all about these invasions well, I think that all happened pretty on top of itself, like within 36 to 48 hours. So my guess is Ant-Man and the Wasp happens like just on or around or before all of that shit is going down. And frankly, this film is so, so, so packed with plot. It's not hard to believe that they wouldn't miss what's going on in New York, in Wakanda. There's like six different plot lines going on all at once in this movie. I specifically mean that they're on the roof testing this quantum thing moments before the snap, which means the invasion of New York that Tony had to fend off from Doctor Strange's Sanctorum already happened, and there's already been time to get to Wakanda, and the Wakanda fight is already going on. And there's already been time for the attack in, what, where the hell is it, Bavaria on WandaVision? No. This is no, no, no. Mm-hmm. 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 I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, my only answer is that Hank and Janet live on the beach and dress like hippies, so maybe they don't look at the internet. I really have nothing for that one. But now we've talked about the end of the film before we've even talked about the film itself. Sounds like a good time to start the movie to me. Huh. Opening the movie right away with answers that we wanted from the last movie was great. Giving us Janet right away. I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer's performance is super on right away. Hope is there and she's awesome. And once again, they make Hank Pym a likable curmudgeon telling the story. Absolutely. And opening on Wasp's flashback to clearly establish that this is her movie from second one is really great. When asked about having the first MCU title to feature a female character, Reed said that it was very organic and noted Wasp's final line from Ant-Man being, it's about time, establishing the intent for a larger role for the character in this film. It didn't make a lot of sense that she didn't have it in the last movie. Once again, there were so many bug characters in the Pym family to pick from. Even Cassie, Scott Lang's daughter, goes on to be a superhero named Stature. 
there are so many female bug characters to pick from. It's unbelievable that none of them made it into the first one and that the first wasp we get is an original character. It certainly makes me wonder about what direction the MCU is going to go in the future. A lot of the films more and more are being inspired by the comics as opposed to directly adapting them. The most important character in Spider-Man's life is Ned Leeds, a character who was created entirely for the MCU. And we saw that being something that they were doing as far back as the beginning with Agent Coulson, who then became a fan favorite character that was a linchpin of the Avengers. So I think this is the most significant original character that we have probably seen to date. And it makes me wonder what they're possibly going to do in the future. I'm also a little bit disappointed that Cassie is so young and we probably won't end up seeing her as stature. I don't think the MCU is going anywhere anytime soon, but like the kid's 10 or something. I I don't want a 10-year-old superhero, that's for sure. And speaking of Cassie and popular original characters, Cassie and Luis really set the stuff with Scott off really well. All the things with them crawling in the fake subterranean family playhouse set was really adorable and kind of magical. I truly think Scott Lang is like the best comic book movie dad ever and they make a really compelling case. I'm not a huge fan of comic book Scott Lang and I did not start Ant-Man 1 a Scott Lang fan, but I am genuinely a Scott Lang fan because of this movie. Yeah, for sure. I really love how the opening of this film is two important scenes of fathers and daughters and not only that but they use those moments to organically retell all of all of the important parts of the first film they accurately recap what we already learned about janet van dyne from the first film while embellishing on it without changing anything which is great a lot of times when they do stuff like that in a sequel they change crap which i find so annoying and they drew from elements of scott's adventure as ant-man when he was playing with cassie to give little shout outs to fans who saw the first film and sort of introduce us to the idea of what he did as ant-man and how he portrayed it to his daughter they do manage to keep the overload of things early on kind of fun i enjoy getting everything about janet i enjoy getting louise back and seeing that scott under has arrest is being a great dad we see louise being responsible which you pointed out as a great response to having had one of the only minority characters be an ex-con here he's transformed into a responsible business owner and i think that's great also randall park's agent woo is adorable hot wonderful great amazing funny He's terrific. I think he's a great addition to the cast. I agree. I hope that we see him in future films. Randall Park is amazing. And, you know, we haven't had a character like that who can run through the MCU films in a while. Someone who can be that sort of Coulson character. And I think we are going to be needing new ones soon, probably. And he would be a welcome addition to the MCU. He's probably the first actor that I recognize from other things that really gave me pause when I saw him here, though, I think, which is weird that it would be him of all people but i was like very taken aback when i saw him ultimately i think it's an unbelievable number of comedic actors that run through this opening scene in the house we get bobby cannavale and judy greer showing up and we get that they're so supportive of him that even agent Wu knows who they are and it's a really positive post-divorce family dynamic that i'm glad that they followed up on 
from the first movie. They didn't turn on him because of Germany. They stood by him even though he made a decision, and I love it. Absolutely. Same, same, same. I realized for the first time today, I don't think I mentioned last episode, but both Ant-Man movies feature major stars who appeared on Will and Grace as love interests for Eric McCormick's character, Will, and I believe they did both kiss Eric McCormick. That's really funny. Both Michael Douglas and Bobby Cannavale, who was recurring on the show. That's unbelievable. I hadn't even considered that either, and they're both kind of big-name things. That's really interesting. And, you know, if you think about it, Judy Greer is known for Arrested Development. Paul Rudd had a very significant role in the final seasons of Friends. Yeah, this is a lot of comedic actors coming together, and it makes sense. They're all pretty recognizable and likable. Speaking of recognizable and likable, damn, Paul Rudd, that body looks great. Yeah, you know, when we went into this movie, I was thinking about it. I was looking for potential images for this episode for our website, and I couldn't remember if there was any place for a shirtless moment for Paul Rudd in this entire film. And it's really funny to me that they sort of got it out of the way as quickly as possible. It reminds me of the shirtless shot of Chris Pratt from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's very early on, it's very quick, and they don't really have any moments like that again in the rest of the film. And it's the same here for Paul Rudd. You just gotta look real good that one day for shooting. And this is what leads us very uncomfortably into a flashback of Janet playing hide-and-seek with a very young Hope Van Dyne. Weird, weird moment to associate with that flashback. Yeah, him in the bathtub makes it kind of interesting. Honestly, later on, I think he plays it really genuine and really kind and really wonderful when he's channeling Janet. But yeah, this is kind of a weird mashup. I agree. And fun fact about that moment, most times when a actor needs to portray a character normally portrayed by a different actor, the original actor will take on the role first so that you can get a sense of how they would play them. That's what Tom Hiddleston did with the cameo appearance by Chris Evans in Thor The Dark World. Here, they chose to forego that, and it is 100% Paul Rudd playing Janet Van Dyne without any assistance from Michelle Pfeiffer, and he does a really great job. The only criticism I had was I think that he doesn't carry himself quite stiffly enough. Michelle Pfeiffer carries herself a little more stiffly. Paul Rudd moves more like a Muppety cartoon character. He always moves like he's dancing in that scene in Clueless. Yes, I see that. So at this point, the Van Dynes and, or Pims, and Scott Lang finally cross paths this movie. Yeah, it's good to have them back so early on in the film. Sometimes they draw stuff like that out, but it's only about 13 minutes until we get Hope and 17 until we get Hank. There's a lot of really fun banter and dynamic between all of them here. I love Scott fanboying over being associated with Captain America and them just sort of rolling their eyes at him. Cap, Tin America, Captain America, that's what we call him. I know him. He's nice. Whatever. And later on, she gets that call back when she's like, if Cap could see you now. Yeah, that's great. This scene also shows a lot of where I'm not sure how I feel about the portrayal of Scott Lang's quote-unquote genius. He is kind of thick sometimes, like how he doesn't know what a wardrobe is. There's a lot of moments like that that are funny, but 
you know, I can't tell if I enjoy them or if they are too far. I really enjoy showing someone who is a genius only in a specific field. He is good at math and engineering. He's not good at all of this quantum physics stuff and that can be okay a lot of genius characters are like tony stark and doctor strange who know everything everything and maybe that can be too much sometimes hey tony even brings in bruce for help with ultron it's true it's true this does introduce the first plot point where i'm like oh no brucky broopy bruce goose birch fine birch whatever it's still the same wedged in plot that i didn't need this is where he's introduced i love the wasp takedown scene and things like her running on the knife's edge is amazing her fighting ghost which ultimately gives us two women engaged in battle in a way that's not a chick fight is incredible and at the point at which hank indicates to scott he's got a suit and scott gives him this look those are cap's eyes those are it's time to do what's right son eyes and it's tremendous and i love it so much but at the same time i'm just kind of like this this subplot hurts when hope threw the salt shaker at the door and enlarged it nico turned to me and said that was a salt and i just i can't i forgot i said that but as soon as you said someone threw a salt shaker i was like that would be a salt you know i really enjoy seeing hope kick ass in this scene it's actually like three full minutes that she fights by herself before she's joined by ant-man so that's pretty cool i just want to say i love that you said joined by ant-man and not rescued because that really is how it was portrayed joined by great distinction yeah no she was assisted by and i don't think that he at all undercuts it in fact one of the first things he says to her when he joins her in battle is you taught me how to do that kick like the first thing he says to this woman when he goes to assist her is, you taught me everything I know. It really is Wasp and the Ant-Man. I do agree that we already have too many subplots going on right now. They've introduced that Scott only has three more days before he's done with house arrest. And they've introduced that they're trying to find Janet. And they've introduced Birch for some reason. And they introduced Ghost. Like, already so much is happening. And the ex-cons have the presentation in a day or two. Yeah, the Kobayashi Maru presentation or whatever it is. And then they make it that there's only so much time to save Janet. Like, already, it's too much. And we are only about half an hour into this movie. And what's funny is we frequently commented that the plot of a lot of these films frequently aren't apparent until rather late in the movie here not even any subplots have been saved to be introduced the most that we're going to get later is the explanation of why ghost is doing all of this but even that's at about 45 minutes into this two-hour film and you're right there's really no plot left to introduce into this film just circumstances to explain and yet i still feel like there's too much going on in this movie at all times. I'm overwhelmed and bored simultaneously. Yeah, there's a few pratfalls of screenwriting throughout this film. There's two scenes in a row that end with, well, there's this one person that we could go to. First, when Scott is saying they need a place to go after Ghost takes the building. And then when Hank is saying there's someone they can go to to get information who turns out to be Bill Foster. Bill Foster kicks ass, but there are some weird conceits you have to make to have Bill Foster here. He is here pretty much exclusively to be bad Hank Pym. And I just don't accept that. I feel like this movie did not have room for Bill Foster. Ghost did need someone, but she didn't need Bill. And where he's bad guy aligned 
Hank Pym. He's actually shown in a short amount of time to have been better to his foster daughter than Hank really was to his own daughter. A huge part of their story is that most of her life, they had a very distanced relationship. And we get a much more affectionate portrayal of the relationship between Bill Foster and Ava. I actually, honestly, toward the end of this film, was deeply concerned that they were going to show that there was a romantic component to Bill Foster and Ava's relationship. That scene at the end where she's telling him to go, and he's like, no, I can't leave you. Honestly, y'all do such crazy stuff that I wouldn't have been surprised if that had been deemed acceptable as a romance. For a movie studio that we claim does not have enough strong women, this film is unbelievably about daughters and not just fathers and daughters but also mothers and daughters because so much of this movie is chasing the holy grail of great motherhood that is Janet Van Dyne. I'm surprised there wasn't more interaction written in between Hope and Cassie. I guess there's no place for it given the story beats and pacing and I wonder if we'll see it should we get another Ant-Man and Wasp movie in the future but with how much there was about mothers and daughters and fathers and daughters as you said there wasn't really any mother-daughter stuff beyond Janet and Hope. I guess you could say the way that Janet comes to Ava's assistance though. I agree I really do she is the holy grail of motherhood capable of forgiving and nourishing anybody with love really she is an incredible metaphor for motherhood in a franchise that tends to leave mothers out so much of tony's problems with his family are stemmed from and aimed at his father and then we're just supposed to accept that he's got feelings for his mom or whatever cap's mom isn't even an afterthought black widow didn't have parents nobody really talks about hawkeye in general so it just kind of feels like this is them trying to fix parenthood in one film starting with motherhood but what's really adorable is they also managed to make so much of it about being a parent in a cute way i love everything that happens in the school i love that they need to get the little suit from the trophy they introduced that earlier that he said that it was the most valuable thing in the world because it had an ant-man suit in it and if only cap could see you now yeah, that was great. That was really funny. I love the sequence of him running around in the little hoodie. It's so genuine that the teacher wouldn't actually chase the kid down. As long as he's not hurting himself, they probably wouldn't care in a public school. And it really helped keep the film going at a comedic pace. This film works really hard to make sure that it keeps a balance with that because there's a lot of dramatic stuff going on at the same time. But dramatic compared to Infinity War? Not so much. And I think that's part of why this movie is, in many ways, so flimsy. They were trying to have a light film to follow up Infinity War, to let people know that this universe wasn't now the deep, dark, sad, grim, dark universe. Yeah, I definitely see that. And frankly, the MCU audience needed some kind of palate cleanser after all of the drama of Infinity War. Without acting like nothing before Infinity War ever happened. Some of the best lines in this movie are references to things that took place before. Like when Hope says, if you had taken me to Germany, you wouldn't have gotten caught. Mmm, I love all of her super confident lines in this, yeah. And her Germany jealousy doesn't seem to be anything petty. It's pretty legitimate. She is his partner, and he is a superhero, and he put his life in jeopardy. Admittedly, I think it's because at the time they made Civil War, they didn't know that they were going to be doing so much Wasp, but they managed to make something organic and developmental out of it. 
from the school sequence, we move on to them discovering Ghost's hideout, and they use this stock wolf howl sound effect when the car pulls up that really made me cringe hardcore. That, coupled with the fact that this villain's name is Ghost, I kind of wish this was a Halloween movie now. Now I really need an MCU Halloween film after Iron Man was Christmas. Ah, Spider-Man vs. the Hobgoblin. I'm about it, I'm about it. One of the things that kind of bothers me about Ghost is she is so ironically ill-defined and her molecular disequilibrium stuff just sort of seems to be like it's a superpower and a super villainy power and pain and it's good and works the way she wants when she wants it to and other times it just conveniently hurts her. Yeah, everything about her story kind of feels like a secondhand Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. standalone episode plot merged with the easiest to copy parts of the villain backstory from Iron Man 2 because there is a lot of Hank Pam, you destroyed my father's life in this backstory, and I just don't find Ava really sympathetic. I find her mean and aggressive, and I feel for her plight, but she's also like, I don't know, something about her performance kind of reminds me of Drusilla from Buffy, and that she's like super out of it. I find her really creepy when she's in the suit, and like super threatening and ominous in a way that I didn't even find the Black Order in Infinity War. But her as a character herself, I understand Birch's motivation more than I understand Ava's at times. Ava is also victim of trying to pack too much into this film that none of it is its own thing. Every plot in this movie is no more than two-thirds of an entire film plot, and yet they're trying to hinge whole movies on it while combining them all and pretending there isn't too much happening in this movie all at once. And everything is like, right now, right now. Ava's like, I'm going to die in the next few days if we don't do this right now. Janet's location is going to be lost for the next hundred years if we don't do this in the next few hours. If... Scott doesn't get back to his house on time. He's going to get caught by Wu and by his ex-wife. Like, it's everything is a little bit too. It literally needs to happen at this exact second. And even then, too much happens kind of like all together. Ava captures them a little too easily. And then the Altoitin escape is a little too easy. And then the truth serum stuff that happens in a few minutes is a little too easy and then janet just magically takes control of scott at exactly the right time and it's a little too easy i agree i agree it all sort of starts happening pretty rapidly there once we hit the truth serum sequence i'm disappointed because apparently we were potentially going to get a chris evans cameo in that but they ultimately decided that it didn't really work organically with the retelling of civil war they wanted to focus on like their cast but cap come on tin america Cap, that's what we call him. Uh. So I have some issues with Scott deciding that he needs to break free of Hank and Hope only because the world could end and he seems to not be terribly concerned about this quantum tunnel business. He seems very, you guys have this, right? And that does not seem realistic of the situation at all. Yeah, and like, not for nothing, if they're this close to bankruptcy and Luis really can't do all of this stuff on his own, I'm not saying I want their business to fail, because that's like horrible, but the plot being Scott should feel bad for not being available in the middle of this literal quantum catastrophe, that sucks. So what's going to happen if, like, Cassie breaks her arm and Luis forgot to lock the office? Is he going to have to 
feel bad about needing to take his daughter to the hospital, that's a much smaller emergency than what's going on here. And Luis, what, forgot to bring some security cameras? I don't love the picture that it paints for the character, for sure. You've already given him the little desk. Isn't that enough? Isn't it? Once Scott turns on Hank and Hope, Hey. It all sort of comes together in a really lovely way, though. Like, I actually love the heist-ishness of the get back to your home before you're caught. I love Cassie covering for him and being a sympathetic ear and his best friend. It's cute that she wants to partner with him and is like, no, it's fine. You can partner with Hope, I guess. And then he saves Hope and Hank, and it's such a lovely mirror of them breaking him out in the first movie yeah i do really love that symmetry there's a lot of really cute stuff that they love doing in these films with symmetry like that and i mean he only like abandons them for less than 10 minutes he comes back to them pretty quickly what's really wild to me is that once hank launches into the quantum realm and we launch into the final chase sequence of the film that chase sequence if you demark it ending with janet and hope reuniting it's like a full half a freaking hour that's almost non-stop breakneck all of this stuff happening meanwhile they tell us that he only has 15 minutes whatever there actually really enjoy a lot of the giant stuff and i enjoy the grow and shrink and all the cool stuff with the car and giving Luis an opportunity to shine bill foster makes a clear decision to be a hero there's even something really amazing about hank and janet getting to be together in the quantum realm for a moment they don't reunite here he gets a moment with her before everyone else does and i don't know i think that's pretty sweet I agree. It's really cool to see, once again, these hugely prolific actors for who are known for such critically acclaimed roles outside of this superhero franchise coming together and playing not just characters in superhero films, but such iconic characters as Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. And there are so many really cool moments throughout this sequence. Cool and campy, I'll, I'll be honest. Birch having bike henchmen is the scooby Dooinest thing I've seen in an MCU film in a while. I didn't need an MCU Pacific Blue crossover. Thanks, USA. Basically, this is where we get our stamio for the film as an old man whose car shrinks, leading him to believe he is having an acid flashback. That's your anti-penultimate stamio, everyone. What a way to go. <laughs> Burn. I know these stamios are just meant to be fun, lighthearted ways to pay tribute to the people who came before, namely Stan Lee, but sometimes I'm like, these are so dumb. Yeah, sometimes he just shows up to be there, and, you know, it still gets applause every time, so it accomplishes its goal. There's really nothing great about the way the ending happens. They defeat Brucky O'Hare with truth serum is very cute actually but it doesn't feel like the conclusion to a marvel cinematic universe b or c plot like literally XCon getting a lot of work from those guys is the only thing that justifies the inclusion of that storyline in this whole film but it ultimately still does not justify the inclusion of that storyline in this film janet van dyne is left with quantum powers in all of this how do you feel about the inclusion of janet van dyne's quantum powers and frankly the overall representation of the quantum realm considering it is likely to play an integral role in 
in Endgame. I feel like they went for a really interesting depiction of Janet. She's not really comic book Janet. She's not a fashionista and she wasn't a founding Avenger. But the character that they've given us in the form of Hope has been really great. And I like the Janet I've gotten. Giving her quantum powers is interesting, especially because that doesn't seem to have done anything to stop the snapping from happening to her. So I'm okay with that. I think the way she just kind of heals Ghost is fine. It was pretty convenient. It just sort of happened and then suddenly Ghost was better. It's cool. The movie just sort of plays out to an ending that leaves me kind of blah. The Quantum Realm stuff was probably the most interesting stuff in the movie. I really appreciated that again. It was also the most interesting stuff in the last movie, so I'm excited that it will possibly play a bigger role in the Marvel Universe going forward. I'm excited to potentially see more of Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet going forward. She is the actor that both director Peyton Reed and Hope Van Dyne actor Evangeline Lilly wanted for the role of Janet Van Dyne. Michael Douglas actually wanted his own wife, Catherine Zeta-Jones. I think that would have been interesting. I don't know if she is older enough than Hope Van Dyne to be her mother, but you know, whatever works. They can do amazing things. Like in Captain Marvel, Nick Fury looked young as hell, and so did Coulson. In this one, with Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas at the beginning, yeah. They really could if they wanted to. I thought all of the Quantum Realm stuff was really pretty. I don't feel like we got as many answers or notions about the Quantum Realm as we did from the first Ant-Man film, but we certainly did get a lot of diving into what the scientists can do with it. It's funny, the lab set in this film, the giant quantum tunnel, is ironically the biggest set that has ever been built for a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Choke on that irony. And it was inspired by the 1966 television series The Time Tunnel. It only lasted like 30 episodes. I've never heard of this, but... Holy shit, Time Tunnel. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that show only lasted like six months, apparently. But huge influence on what they did here. I think everything wraps up kind of a little bit too nicely, a little bit too evenly. Everybody goes on the run and they all get away with it. The gag of Scott's giant suit is funny, but, you know, it's, again, it's, they, they get away with it just in the nick of time, which is, you know, the point of a heist film. And what do I always say? You can't watch Desperate Housewives and not suspend the fact that it's a mystery. Of course, all of this shit is going to happen on Wisteria Lane. But it's, again, it's a lot of things all on top of each other. If it all didn't have to happen on the same afternoon in the same square, mile it wouldn't bother me so much yeah that's really fair that's really true and then we get into the closing montage of everyone with their happy endings i went in to check i think it's really cute the come on get happy sequence at both the beginning and the end of the film are both approximately a minute long so again that was some really cute symmetry that they put into the film here now i just have to assume there's a one minute cut of that song they wanted to license Hey, it's possible. You never know. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is the end of the movie in some ways doesn't feel conclusive, but the credit scene does for everything that it sets up. I agree. The film sort of leaves everything very loose in that, you know, technically Hope is a fugitive, but she's able to show up for this 
miniaturized date with Scott's daughter. And then we see in the credit sequence that Scott is showing up to do some work with the Pym family to send some quantum particles to Ava, who they're still chummy with. It feels like I don't really know what sort of place the characters are left in, but with all of them basically being poofed by the end of this movie. And I kind of felt like this was just another one of those post post credit scenes where I was like, what a waste. Just the giant ant. What a waste. Yeah, and like, why does he need to be there? Why is that his pet now? He didn't have a pet ant at the beginning of this, even though they showed that there was a pet ant at the end of Ant-Man. Now that creature is gone. Can you imagine a child having to learn to cope with the death of their first pet and having it be this giant mutant ant? There's no books for that. How do you tell your friends? Kind of. Then this film is the first not to promise the further appearance of a character. The final post-credits caption reads, Ant-Man and the Wasp will return with a question mark. That kind of just makes it sound like a typo, because that's not really a full question. (gasps) Basically. I think one of the things about this movie is that it was really just meant to buy time. It was just meant to be a palate cleanser and whistle wetter to keep you moving through to Captain Marvel, which was a tentpole. And even if it was necessarily a tentpole in terms of how it will affect the plot of Endgame, because I obviously, not being spoilery about Endgame, who knows, but I don't think that they set a lot of things out there that seem like they will connect. It's a tentpole in terms of introducing a major character who is going to be crucial to this final chapter and potentially ongoingly in the MCU. This one was just, you know, sort of a fun light sequel to a film that was just sort of fun and light in the first place the only thing that made its placement here significant is the bits of marvel science hooey that are going to be important to endgame when it comes out and speaking of looking forward captain marvel I mean, we just saw it a few times recently. It's hard to talk about what I remember, and it's easier to talk about what it made me feel. I'm so excited to discuss this movie. We've been hinting at it for several weeks, and it's finally here. I don't want to talk too much. All I'm going to say is that they had to pronounce V-E-R-S Veers, or you would have immediately gotten the Carol Danvers bit. Yeah, completely. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Captain Marvel is they played very close to the chest what the true plot of this film was and used it a lot to their advantage to surprise the audience and subvert their expectations. I definitely had certain expectations of what Captain Marvel was going to be when I went into it based on all of the trailers and all the things that we'd heard about it and just, frankly, all the things that we know about Kree versus Skrulls and Captain Marvel's origin herself. And I think they did a great job of staying faithful to her canon while still putting in a lot of surprises for us in in the film. Whether or not they were faithful to the canon, for me, they were faithful to the spirit of the character, which is the most important thing. That's the tentpole that has carried this banner this far. Captain America totally changed canon, but spirit of the character. Same with Tony Stark. All the biggies, they carry that 
majesty that I associate with the character. And Captain Marvel did not disappoint. So, Kevo, until we launch toward the Kree homeworld holla, where can everybody find you on the internet? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And you can find me on Facebook, managing the Facebook page for our show that is Husbands Talking More or Less. Don't forget to check out our comic book, Kid Riot, where we have inclusive, diverse characters for a modern audience, free, available at KidRiotComics.com. We also have other shows here on this fine network, like X's for Podcast, where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and making our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants, as well as Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series. If you're a fan of this show, you'll probably be a fan of the other stuff this network does, and you probably want to throw a few dollars their way. So check out cageclub.me's Patreon, and you can help shape the future of the network. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right, guys. Go blast yourselves with some pim Particles. We'll see ya. See you on Holla!